as we come to the bottom of our cycle on a one another community, we encounter three practices that set the one another community apart. The first one is the practice of teaching and admonishing one another, not one person with an IQ of 140 uh, admonishing the rest of the group, but the group with an IQ of about 100, but a collective IQ of 140. They teach and admonish one another well. Where that is done well, people confess and they are forgiven. But because the sins we confess often leave remnants behind, tendencies, patterns, if you will, residual effects that last a long time, that same community once offended now comes alongside of the person who offended it and starts to carry the weight of that sin, that burden, that leftover. And they serve that person who once offended them. These three practices are the place where the one another community starts to look very different from what is out in society today. This is where we become an attractive social option. This is where the people that we once accepted into the community start to change. They're confronted with teaching, admonishment. They go through a period of confession. They are forgiven. And then the body gets around them and helps bring that person back to wholeness. This is where encouragement starts to pay dividends, <laughs> if you will. This is where we start to see the effect of teaching. Jesus said to his disciples, settle matters quickly while you are still with the person. Don't wait until you go to court, Matthew chapter 5. He said in Matthew chapter 18, if a brother sins against you, go show him his fault. If he listens to you, you've won him over. If he does not, then bring one or two other witnesses. Wait, so that the matter may be established in the presence of witnesses. Peter said, well... How many times do you want us to forgive the same guy? Say, seven? Jesus must have laughed. Said, <laughs> seven times 70. Peter. I can see Peter doing the math. So on the 491st time, just to say he misses the point. The Israelites uh, in the Old Testament had a strange practice whenever they wanted to separate themselves from their sins. Like they were always longing for innocence and always frustrated at their inability to find it. And so on the Day of Atonement, they practiced a ritual involving a bull 
and two goats. The high priest would take the bull and sacrifice it for the atonement of his own sins. And then he would take the two goats and stand them in front of the sacred tent, sort of like the vestibule in a church. (laughs) And he would present them to the Lord. And then after he did that, he would cast lots. And one of the goats would then be taken into the altar and slaughtered, its blood spread around the altar for the forgiveness of the community's sins. The other goat, well, I'll let the text speak. Then the priest shall bring forward the other goat and lay both hands on its head and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Then he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will be carried out into the solitary place with the sins of the people on it. And then the man shall release the goat into the desert. Historians tell us when they did this, the goat would instinctively turn around and follow the man back to the community. He's a goat. He knows where home is. And so as the practice evolved, the man leading him out would either break its legs in the desert, leaving him to the wild animals, or they would take him to a cliff and shove him over. What happened to the priest himself? Well, the man who releases the goat as the scapegoat, must then wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Afterward, he may come back into the camp. This is Israel's practice of separating its sins from itself. There must be a victim. There must be a body. There must be flesh. There must be something that exemplifies all that is wrong with society today. We must find a goat and make him a gross distortion of what any one of us is alone. We'll take the worst of us and put it on him and drive him out. Of course, when you get into the New Testament, that goat is Jesus. Isaiah 53, you'll hear the language. Listen to what Isaiah, surely he has taken up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord, here's the language, is laid on him. The iniquity of us all. Now, the problem, of course, is that because uh, you can only lay onto the goat the sins that you committed, not the ones you're about to commit, 
You can only give him your actions. You cannot give him your nature. Putting your sins upon a goat and driving him into the wilderness will give you a wonderful feeling of innocence. But it will not take your sins away. It will not lessen the impulse for you to do them again. It cannot minimize the damage that we will continue to do to one another. But it will give us a temporary, wonderful feeling of innocence. Now we have found a way to condemn evil even while we commit it. We have found a way to put onto him what is still in us. Now, if this practice seems to you primitive and barbaric, consider that something very similar to this is happening in the public square almost all of the time. We don't get a goat. And we don't slaughter anything. But we wait as a public for someone to offer their services. We wait for someone to say too much or to do too much to cross an invisible line. And all of a sudden, we profile them. We single them out. We stand them up in front of the public and the whole community starts to pile their sins on to that guy or that woman who did the unthinkable. Now we have found our victim. There is the body. After we abuse them, we run them out of the community, giving us a wonderful feeling of innocence. I'm good enough to recognize evil. But it is always only the evil in somebody else. We believe ourselves innocent because we know how much we hate evil. But the evil we hate is always in someone else. Maybe we should consider ourselves innocent only so far as we see the evil in ourselves and never in someone else. Because after we have found our victim and put our axe upon them and driven them out of the community, it has not lessened the impulse that any one of us will do it again. It has not shined the light in the deepest caverns of our own soul. It does not minimize the damage that we keep doing to one another in our relationships, not his or hers, ours. That scene is played out again and again and again in America today. I'm intentionally not using any names, any, any current events, though I think you can read those into these. 
what if there was another way? What if there was a way for the community to have high standards so that when somebody sinned, we couldn't tolerate it, but at the same time to be open and gracious and healing and forgiving? So I present to you this morning two communities, one that stands before Jesus and another stands before Paul. The one that stands before Jesus in John chapter 8 is, uh, is a community of men that found a woman who was in the act of committing adultery. It was one of five sins in Jesus' day that could get you the death penalty. And so they bring the woman caught in adultery, doing the unthinkable in front of Jesus. And they say to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses says that we should stone this person. What do you say? Jesus bends down and starts to write something on the ground. People go nuts trying to read into what he wrote. While he is writing, they're still writing him with questions. Come on, Jesus, what does the law say? How do you read it? He stands and says, the one of you that has no sin, let him throw the first stone. And then he bends down to write something else. <laughs> and while he's writing, one by one, they go away. Await for the text. The text says, until Jesus was left alone, standing with the woman. Now, there you have a dilemma. If you're a righteous, upright person who loves the law of Moses, on the one hand, you are upholding the law. This is what the Bible says. On the other hand, you find yourself on the opposite of issue with Jesus. Uh, note to self. Whenever Jesus appears to be the only one in the circle who doesn't get it. Maybe he's the only one in the circle who does. Maybe he knows something about forgiveness that the rest of us do not know. So Jesus stands next to the woman this time and says, ma'am, where are your accusers? I picture him, faint smile in his eyes. Are no one left to accuse you? Still scared for her life, she says, no one, sir. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Raymond Brown translates it, now go and avoid this <laughs> in the future. Here is a community of men, upright, conservative, zealous, 
exact, perfect in and of themselves. And yet, something very horrible is happening. When they bring the woman to Jesus, they bring her as someone else. They do not bring her as someone who belongs to their community. They bring her as someone who is apart from them, someone other than them, someone who is today lower than them, someone who did something we would never do. And it's that spirit that makes this such a toxic encounter. And Jesus cuts to the heart of it and says, all right, then if you have no sin, go ahead, throw. And in a moment, it is clear when the last man has left, every one of them deserves to be taking those rocks instead of throwing them. Are we all right? The other community uh, is the one in front of Paul. Paul says, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you and confess your sins to one another and pray for one another while you are confessing and hearing confessions so that in this process of confessing our sins to one another and forgiving one another, you may be whole. I'm gonna draw pictures. I've worked a long time on getting this art right. things. Two things are intersecting all the time. One is confession and the other is forgiveness. In any circle, in any family, in any marriage, any relationship, any team, church, whatever it is, these two things are always happening at the same time. And here's why. Because most people only confess what they believe the community will forgive. This is why people scatter information. They'll tell mom some things and they'll tell their friends some things. They're not lying, they're scattering information because they're determining what is that person's capacity to forgive what I'm about to confess. If they can't forgive, <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna say a word. And yet the community can only forgive what a person confesses because they're not even aware that it's out there. And so when a person confesses, there are two things that are happening all of the time. One of them is sorrow. It's a sense of contrition or vulnerability. This is where a person is not just feeling grief, but they are in their heart of hearts regretting that they've done this. This is not sadness. 
sorrow, godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians means there is a deep distaste for the thing that I have done and for the way that it has affected the other person. The other thing that they're doing is they're committing to some new course of action. So on the one hand, there's a deep sense of repentance, and on the other hand, there's a deep resolution to pursue a new course of action. At the same time, the body is hearing this. The group is hearing the sins that a person is confessing, and they too must have decisions to make. One of them is to release the person from the thing that they've committed. The word forgive, by the way, literally means to send away, to separate. And so when we forgive, we separate what a person has done from the person themselves. We no longer talk about it in our conversations with them. We no longer think about it when we are alone without them and we no longer bring it up in conversations with other people. Oh, but you'll remember him. You remember it. You remember what he did. I don't say anything. But what Jesus said is, neither do I condemn you. There's a release. Second thing is there's an empowerment. Go and sin no more. Jesus knows full well when he says this to the woman, he's putting a lot of responsibility on her, and yet he seems optimistic on her ability to carry it out. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, help me out, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we have not only the release, but we have the full empowerment to go and sin no more. Now watch. You can divide these into the way different groups or communities deal with sin. In the first quadrant... The group becomes skeptical. The reason why is because the person who has sinned is looking at the community's inability to forgive them and they will not confess. You don't confess to the hangman. You confess to a priest. So to the extent the body looks to the confessor like a hangman and not a priest, they will not confess. And yet the body cannot forgive because they're always wondering, is there something else back there? Did you do things we haven't caught you doing? Is there another agenda? And so they become skeptical of one another. One will not confess and the other will not forgive. And all that is left that community is the serial apologies. One apology for everything I did wrong. But the apology is only for the thing I did wrong and not for anything else. And it is not for anything deeper than the thing I did wrong. We don't go there in a skeptical group. Relationships do this all the time. I'm sorry, I forgive you. Sorry, I forgive you. There's an apology without any commitment to change. 
And so there's an immediate release. I forgive you. I forgive you for what? And over time, the individuals in that group become severed by little offenses that are only apologies with no full disclosure. And they drift apart. They become detached. They become apprehensive. Okay, enough negative. Whew, that was hard. Let's get a little more positive. Over here are the legalists. Slightly more positive. It's like being the healthiest patient in the intensive care unit. This is, <laughs> this is a strict society. What happens here is the person confessing is going all the way. They're not only vulnerable and repentant of the thing they've done, but they're also committed to a new course of action. All the body does is wait for the person to change. We model the standard. We keep our love of truth at an optimum, but we do not do anything to help the person or empower them. This is the body in front of Jesus on that day. We always think of the evil as being in the other person. And so society becomes judgmental and critical of one another. And the problem, of course, with people who live in this quadrant is the person who ultimately pays are the are the judges themselves. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. Now wait for the next verse. It's in Matthew chapter seven, verse one and two. For with the judgment you use to judge others, you yourself will be judged. He's not saying, if you judge, you're gonna go to hell. He's saying, listen to him, if you are by nature a critical person, always seeing how something could be better. Well, I don't know if I like that. Critique, 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 critique. The hell you pay for this is you will live a paranoid life. You will go home tonight knowing that everybody else in the room is judging you because that's what you do to other people. That's the price you pay. The measurement that you set for other people. I see that body of work and I see it as half empty. Everything you do yourself will be half empty because the measurement you establish for somebody else is the one you'll have to live in yourself. Keep preaching, Steve. Now you're gone to meddling. Down here in the third one. In the third one is a person who says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the body comes down and does everything too quickly and it becomes permissive. You see this all the time in small churches where the person the church needs the most is the one who has the most flaws. But they also have the most money and so you can't take them on. You just sort of have to go, oh, I see that sin. Is there another one? 
and you forgive it. And as a result of that, the body ends up enabling the person and becoming codependent on the person. Now everybody's sick. And so while everybody's getting along, the body has lost its capacity to transform people because it can no longer call people out. It can only affirm them. Most groups settle for the middle part right in here. And this is what I call a sterile society. Sterile, by the way, means squeaky clean, germ-free but you know why it's germ-free? It's not because there are no germs. In a sterile society, there are germs. It's just that the germs have been rendered unable to reproduce themselves. If you think there are no germs in an operating room, you're kidding yourself. There are, but they cannot reproduce. So the problem with a sterile society is we break our sins into crimes and misdemeanors. And the ones we confess are the misdemeanors. I'm in a group once, and we're saying, let's talk about our sins. And the lady says, after long thinking, I don't write enough letters It's like Jesus dies, the Son of God dies six hours one Friday because you don't write enough letters? <laughs> that sounds to me like a $10 solution to a 50 cent crime. But that happens in sterile societies because she knows if she were to come out and say, I've left my husband for another man, she would no longer belong there. That's a crime. So in a sterile society, we put on the pretense of transparency by confessing to some things, but not to all things, which leaves the last one, which is a restorative community. In a restorative community, when a person sins, Paul says, they confess their sins, they admit to the thing that they have done and feel genuine remorse for having done it. Not, not for hell or for being pushed out of the community, but because they are genuinely sorry for the act itself. They see the damages. And they are committed to a new course of action. And so the body, the family, the one who was cheated upon actively releases people and begins to find ways to come alongside of them. Last week I um, heard of a couple, he was caught again in porn. And um, what his wife said to him was, what are we 
going to do to help you overcome this? I was struck by the corporate pronoun we. I did not hear her say, what are you going to do? You know this is wrong. It's your problem, not mine. Now deal with it. And then never tell him when enough is enough. So he lives the rest of his life with a debt. He doesn't know if he's paid it back or not. It's a source of power in the relationship from that time on. Nor does she look at him and say, oh, that's okay, honey. It's a guy thing. I get that. Just stay with me, baby. Up here, she has all the power. Down here, he has all the power. What she said was, what are we going to do together for you to find wholeness in this area of your life? Now, when I speak on uh, confession and forgiveness to people, I'm well aware that there are many people in our midst this morning, individuals who find yourself in one of these quadrants. There are people that have not confessed anything because you're afraid if you were to confess it, there would be immediate repercussions and you would not recover. And this is among Christian organizations, by the way. Uh, yeah, I will confess some things, but I will not confess the darker ones because if they were to find out, well, it would cost me my position or certainly my reputation. I cannot risk that. There are also organizations that are represented in the room right now, teams, groups, that find themselves in one of these quadrants. There are people that went crossways with us sometime in the past and we're either holding up the standard or we forgave them too quickly or we just talked around the edges of it. What I know is this. Every time there is a sin, whether you commit it or somebody else does, every time a dirty little secret comes out, there is another opportunity for the person and the group to reestablish themselves. So you may look at the screen and you may say, well, I think we're in quadrant number three or number two, but you're really only there for a moment. You're never stuck there. Every time there's a new grievance, there's a new opportunity to say, which one are we going to live in? Last story. Once there was a man with two sons. The elder son was studious and diligent and disciplined and the younger son <laughs> well he was a second born and uh, came to his dad one day and he said dad I want my inheritance and I want it now he must have known his father sure did that for a young boy to tell his dad he wants his inheritance early was the equivalent of saying in that day, I wish you were dead. 
He must have known that his father could have written him out of the will entirely because he was the second born and not the first and nobody would have noticed. But what the father did was to give him his part of the inheritance. So the boy took the inheritance and he ran away to a far off field and he began to live riotously. Have you heard this story? Don't spoil it for me. He got to a place where all of his freedom created for him a narrow little world. Died by the day. His options became less and less, not more and more. The first indication he was doing something wrong. Finally, on the day he woke up and realized that my father has servants back at the house that are eating better than I am. And here I am feeding animals we don't even like. Here's what I will do. He said, I'll get up and I will go home. And I will say to my father, father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your boy. Make me like a servant. From this day on, I'll do everything servants do and I'll never ask for another thing. So he got up and he started going home and his father must have been sitting on the porch because it says while the boy was a long way off, the father saw him and he pulled up his little robe and the old man started to run. Old men in that day never ran. It was a sign of indiscretion or weakness, petuousness. He saw the boy and he couldn't contain himself and he ran and he met him in the field. And the boy started with his confession. He said, Father, I've sinned. The father cut him off. Turns to the real servant and says, Go get the family ring, go kill the calf. Go get my sandals and put them on the boy's feet. For this boy that was gone has come home. Went to the older brother who was still out in the field. And he said, come on in, man. There's a party. Your younger brother's home. He said, all I've done, dad, is work for you all day long and you never give me anything. In a strange way, at the end of the parable, the sinner looks a lot more godly than the saints because of self-awareness. My charge to you this morning, whether you are the sinner or whether you are the one who was sinned against is to be the first to run. Be the first to run. Listen to me. You understand nothing about God until you understand this. He is eager to forgive. 
Don't underestimate what the Father can forgive. Therefore, you are never more like him than when you forgive. And you are never further away than when you can't. Whether you sinned or whether you were sinned against, 